Good morning, new community family. How are we today? All right, the uh, fourth and final Sunday of Advent. So uh, let's look back just for a quick minute uh, through this Advent season. The first Sunday, we discussed where we find our hope. The second Sunday, we were reminded that peace is what we find in Christ our Lord. Uh, Last Sunday, we got to live joy while watching our kids perform uh, through the kids' Christmas program, which how many people were here last Sunday for the kids' Christmas program? If there is a Sunday that you mark on your calendar every year to show up to, if you don't come to any other Sunday, that's, well, I won't say that's okay. That's your prerogative. But if you make it to one, the kids' Christmas program is the one to make it to, third Sunday in December. And the fourth Sunday this morning, we get to talk about love. Of the four Advent themes, hope, I believe, provides the lens with which we are able to see the world around. Peace is what centers our soul. Joy is how we are called to posture ourselves. But love, love, I believe, is the vehicle by which we are called to act as followers of Christ. Hope, peace, and joy shape our character. Love, I believe, shapes our actions. Here is maybe the thesis of all that I will speak about this morning, because I believe love is only real when it's an action. Love is only real when it's an action. Let me begin with uh, a story, and this will be a little bit of a longer story, but um, you have to hear it in its full length, otherwise it won't make a ton of sense. In 2018, Grace and I, alongside our closest friends, Brad and Julie, uh, we were um, all celebrating our 15th wedding anniversaries. We got married a couple of months apart from one another, and in 2018, it was our 15th wedding anniversary, so we decided to go to a place called Tofino. Tofino is a... um, it's about 14 hours from Spokane by car and then also ferry. It's on the west coast of Victoria Island, okay? And it is um, renowned for its unbelievable beauty and then also a surfing uh, community. And so it's this little resort community with great restaurants, but it's very small and people travel from all over the world to go there to surf uh, in the Pacific Ocean, kind of northern Pacific Ocean. And uh, I have a friend who is actually from there, so I had been there before, and uh, Grace and I had been there before, knew it was an awesome place, and so uh, we decided to celebrate 15 years. We're all going to go there and have a really fun, long weekend. So as we were leading up to the trip, I began researching different things that we could do. We were going to be there for four four or five days. We wanted to make sure that we had some kind of planned activities, and one of the things I became very excited about was a uh, Zodiac tour, okay? Do we all know what a Zodiac is? Okay, it's, a, it's that like um, boat, kind of open air boat, fits about 15 to 20 people. They go incredibly fast, and this tour took off from uh, the inlet, went out, and then into the open ocean and traveled two hours north along the coast of the island, and uh, you go, you're like whale watching, you're looking for bears, and then you end, the destination is ending at a hot springs, a natural hot springs that you hang out in for a couple hours, and then the Zodiac brings you back. And I got very excited about this opportunity. It was pretty expensive, but we all said, man, this, if we're going to spend some money, this is the thing that we're going to spend money on. 
So uh, we signed up, we paid our money, we're there, and uh, the tour starts with a 30-minute orientation and survival suit fitting. So you put this huge red survival suit on so that if you go overboard, you are warm while you drowned, okay? That's essentially what is going on. And uh, so it's 30 minutes and they're kind of showing like this little video and we're all getting uh, fitted into these stupid looking suits um, and they're telling us, you know, what, what to be prepared for. And I kind of notice as this orientation is unfolding that Grace has become a little bit quiet, a little bit distant, a little bit quiet, kind of like in her own space. But I didn't think too much about it, frankly, because I was so excited about the Zodiac tour. I didn't have much capacity to think about anything other than myself in this moment. <laughs> And so uh, there's 12 of us on this boat, okay? But maybe even more, maybe like 18, somewhere in there. But uh, Brad, Grace, Julie, and myself are the only American citizens. So again, Tofino has, it's like an international city. City is a strong word. It's an international little destination uh, and for all these people that come in. And so we, I think legitimately, we're the only American citizens on this boat. And um, I gracefully say we're sitting in the front. I don't care who else is on the boat. I'm getting, I'm making my way up to the front. And uh, so there's two seats in the front and Brad and I sit in those seats. And then there's like three or four seats behind us. And Grace says, I'll, I'll sit behind you. I'll, that's fine, I'll sit behind you. And so she takes the seat behind me and Julie's sitting right, right next to her. And, uh, and I was, I mean, to say I was excited is an understatement, okay? And so, we start, uh, the boat uh, kind of leaves the dock, and I look back like in this, I, I just want to share this magical moment with Grace, that we are about to go on this awesome tour, and we're going very slowly through the inlet, and I look back at Grace, and I say, aren't you excited? And she looks at me, and she says, I should have had a drink. <laughs> <laughs> and that should have been another indication to me that something was not okay in this moment. So we're making our way through the inlet and we round the corner and you come out of the inlet and your boat is like looking out into never ending ocean. There is nothing in front of us other than miles and miles and miles and miles of ocean. And at this point, our driver, uh, we called him Captain, but he was like a 16-year-old kid for a summer job, opens the throttle on this boat, and there are two 250-horsepower motors in the back of this thing, and he opens it at 40 miles an hour going, and we are like bouncing and bobbing and weaving through the ocean, and spray is coming up and hitting Brad and I in our faces, and I am like giggling like a little kid. So, so excited. Having the time of our lives for about 45 seconds. And I start to hear behind me a voice say, I'm not okay, I'm not okay, I'm not okay, I don't like this, I'm not okay. And I turn around and all of the color is out of Grace's face. And there is a look of absolute terror in her eyes. At this point, the elation I was feeling quickly is eclipsed by the reality of this unfolding situation. And so there's like this few minutes of trying to figure out what in the world is going on right now. And finally, I kind of stand up gingerly and wave to the captain or the, the driver at this point. And, you know, he's like in this, it looks like a telephone booth that he's standing in in the middle of the boat. And so he stops 
and uh, and I say, hey, this is not going well. We we need to we need to move right now. We can't be in the front. That was kind of like, okay, if we can move to the back, maybe she's not seeing this open ocean in front of her. It's not as terrifying. Won't feel like you're going as fast. And so we. Um, have to, you know, situate and we're like, some people are walking on this side of the boat and other people are walking on this side. So the boat doesn't capsize. And we, you know, we finally get to the back and we're sitting and now we're sitting and we're looking out of the side of the boat and it's Grace and I, and then this really uh, lovely French woman that's kind of on the end. Uh, and I, we're like, okay, now we're settled in, we can go. And so the driver, uh, the driver again, just pushes down on the throttle and we are rocking and rolling on this thing. And within about another minute or two, Grace has completely unzipped her survival suit because she feels claustrophobic and it's like, you know, splayed out around her waist. And she is leaning over into the French lady's lap at this point. Her head is in the lap of this lady. And I begin to do the math in my own mind of how much more time do we have on this boat? At my calculation, 90 minutes left. And then I'm beginning to calculate how much does a Royal Canadian helicopter rescue cost when I'm paying with American dollars? Like, what is the, what does that look like? And I think it's, it's in our best interest, you know, at this point to begin thinking through some of these things. And so, uh, it's not going well. And I lean over and we're sitting like right next to the motors. And while Grace's head is in this woman's lap and I'm trying to figure out, okay, as a husband, what do I do in this moment? I lean over and as discreetly as possible, <laughs> it's at this point, the French lady looks at me and in her wonderful accent, just says, she's not going to make it. <laughs> so I stand back up, I wave the driver to stop, and I come up to this kid, and again, he is, I, I mean, this maybe is his first summer job. I say, hey man, we, we can't keep going. My wife's not going to make it. And he looks at me like he has never seen another human being in his entire life, and he says, what do you mean? I say, I'm, I mean, you're turning the boat around. We're going back. My wife's not going to make this. And he goes, this has never happened to me. I said, yeah, it's never happened to me either. <laughs> We're not going to make it. We need to turn around. And so he calls the owner of the tour company on the radio. Meanwhile, we're just like bobbing in the open ocean right now. It's, you know, water all over the place. Nobody else in the boat is saying a word. He calls the guy on the radio and, uh, and he says, um, hey, uh, I, I, don't, I don't know what's going on, but somebody on the boat is saying that we need to turn around. And he asks, is it okay? And the, I can hear over the radio, the, uh, the owner of the company says, well, what's going on? And the guy looks at me, clearly I can hear what's going on. And I just said, I think my wife is having a mental breakdown or something like that. <laughs> And the uh, owner, hearing that on the radio, says, oh, you mean she's having a panic attack. I have now since learned that is a much better way to talk about <laughs> such topics. And the owner says, oh, yeah, she's not going to make it. You're turning the boat around. <laughs> and so the boat turns around, and we've got about 20, 25 minutes back. Zero words are said. 
She's still laying in the French lady's lap. Not one person is making eye contact with any other single person on the boat. And we pull up to the dock and Grace, and I'm not exaggerating, literally crawls out of the boat and lays in the fetal position on the dock. And of course, all of our stuff is under the seats. And so I'm like having to ask people to get up and move again. And I'm grabbing stuff and I'm putting it on the dock. And as we left the dock for the second time and I could see Grace laying paralyzed in that moment, I couldn't help but think that I should have stayed. Just, guys, just listen, just come on, come on. Also, also, how sad I was that I wasn't going to be sharing the experience with her, but that I was confident she knew that I loved her because I had said it earlier that morning. I am joking. Of course I stayed with my wife. Come on. You guys are ridiculous. She crawled out of the boat. I got all of her stuff out. I got out of the boat and we sat on the dock for the next 15 minutes in silence. The boat to her left. We worked our way back to the VRBO we were staying in made sure she had everything that she needed. She slept for the next couple of hours, absolutely exhausted in this moment. There was only one place that I truly wanted to be, and that was where my wife was in that moment. And it wasn't because I needed her. Honestly, she didn't have much capacity to give me anything in that time. And to be really honest, it wasn't even my preference, right? My preference was the hot springs. That's what I was super excited for. Excited for. And it wasn't even because she guilted me to stay. In fact, the only thing that she said to me as the boat was going back to the dock was, if you want to go, I will be okay. You can go, I will be okay. If I had stayed on the boat like you guys all thought I did, <laughs> you could infer that Zodiac tours were the most important thing to me, the thing I loved the most because that's what would have been the evidence from my actions. But my love for Grace was what drove my action to get off the boat. My love would only have been real if it's paired with action. In that moment, just saying I love you and then leaving doesn't actually show her that I love her. And in the grand scheme of things, giving up a Zodiac tour is not a very big deal. It's actually incredibly minor. But I can attest, and I do think, that love makes you do crazy things. Love makes you do crazy things, and Christmas is one of the craziest things of all. Often not seen as such, but John 3.16, I believe, is an incredibly succinct verse about Christmas. And it says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Because so many of our actions that we experience in our lives are driven by guilt or they're tied to expectations or they're motivated by our own selfishness, I think it's easy to overlook the driving force of love in the Christmas story, 
We've talked about this a number of times from up front, but the Christmas story has become this very quaint kind of nostalgic picture of how God came to us. We all know the details. We know the different key players of the narrative. But when we start to talk about why God came to us, I think we automatically jump and look towards Good Friday. We look towards the cross. We speak of God as a rescuer. We speak of ourselves as derelict agents needing the divine lifeboat and that his love is finally seen on the cross. It's as if we believe the eternal God after 30 incarnate years of life had reached the end of his rope, that he had exhausted all other options and now had to resort to plan B, showing us his love on the cross. The incarnational reality of Christmas is not the beginning of some divine experiment sent to show us how much God loves us. Christmas is the action of God's love becoming manifest to humanity. Because God so loves us, he gave his only son. God's love for us does not change between the first Christmas and the first Good Friday. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son. God didn't don our flesh only then to realize that he needed to endure the cross because for God so loved the world, he gave his only son. God didn't leave eternity and frantically step into our story to fix a problem that had gotten beyond his control For God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son. Dale Bruner says, God the Father did not just emotionally love the world, but do nothing about it. No, he gave. He gave so deeply and so personally that he sent to us his one and only son. We humans cannot fathom the extent of this absolutely unique and divine giving. But we do believe it happened in history, and that it's the world's most profound event and reality ever. The Christmas story answers why God came. Christmas isn't just the means to an end, but an end in of itself. God came because God wanted to be with us. God came because God loves us, and love is only real when it's paired with action. And in this way, Christmas is the action of God's extravagant love. Lewis speaks of the incarnation as the grand miracle. He says, because every other miracle prepares for this or exhibits this or results from this. The incarnation, I believe, is God's love gone crazy. The miracle is that it can no longer be contained in heaven and that it had to become real for us on earth. Brendan Manning says, is there anyone in our midst who pretends to understand the awesome love in the heart of the Abba of Jesus that inspired, motivated, and brought about Christmas? God entered into our world, not with the crushing impact of glory, but in the way of weakness, vulnerability, and need. On a wintry night, In an obscure cave, the infant Jesus was a humble, naked, helpless God who allowed us to get close. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son.
The Greek text speaks of world using the word cosmos here. So God so loved the cosmos, meaning everything, everyone, you, me, them, us, the entirety of his creation, all things seen and yet to be seen. God's love is unrestrained and there is nothing that can escape its reaches. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, God loves human beings. God loves the world. Not an ideal human, but human beings as they are. Not an ideal world, but the real world. What we find repulsive in their opposition to God, what we shrink back from with pain and hostility, this is for God, the ground of unfathomable love. Christmas is not just how Jesus came, it is why Jesus came. And I believe the why should always inform how we are to live as followers of him. If we read the remainder of John 3.16 and John 3.17, it says this, and I think we see three distinct actions of love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. The first thing that love always does is love always chooses. It's God's love that leads him to choose to send his son. God specifically made this choice for us. I mean, certainly there could have been a different way. If we believe God to be in perfect triune relationship, then he doesn't really need us, right? There's really no benefit for him from an eternal God becoming temporal. And in his infinite wisdom, couldn't he have figured out a different approach? But love always chooses what's best for the other. C.S. Lewis says this, love is not affectionate feeling, but a steady wish for the loved person's ultimate good as far as it can be obtained. Do not waste time bothering whether you love your neighbor. Act as if you did. And as soon as we do this, we find one of the greatest secrets. I've used this quote before. I will likely use it again because it is my favorite C.S. Lewis quote. What he identifies is one of the actionable truths of love is that it always chooses the other. Love is not love if it's based on a feeling or if it's contingent upon affection or romance. Love at the center is choosing the other before yourself. God chose to send his son for us. In this way, love is a discipline that should be practiced often. The choosing of the other. Most things in our lives are out of our control. In fact, there's very little that we actually get to dictate in our worlds. But one thing is for sure. We can be disciplined and choose to love with the same extravagant love that God has given us. The second thing, love is a commitment. Love commits. The rest of verse 16 says that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. This is a promise. It's a divine commitment extended to us in God's coming. Love is always inexorably linked to commitment. 
Love is something that lasts, something that can be counted on, something that endures, something that once is extended does not change. We see this throughout scripture and most clearly in the person of Jesus Christ. And God has committed to us, our loving God has committed to us a different way of life if we choose. In a world of planned obsolescence and a culture that values personal freedom above all else, all else, we commit to all sorts of things in all sorts of different ways. I can remember when I was seven, maybe, maybe eight, somewhere in there, begging my mom to let me start karate. My hero, like most 38-year-old males, was Daniel Caruso or Ralph Macchio from the hit movie, The Karate Kid. I wanted to be just like him. He was the coolest person. And so after a conversation about what does following through look like, what does commitment to a new thing look like, my mom reluctantly signed me up for karate lessons. I showed up on that first evening and we were a few minutes late, unfortunately. I don't know how it happened. The Longmire family is typically pretty punctual, but we showed up late. And before I even got my gi or belt, I was in the corner doing knuckle push-ups. Now, as a seven-year-old, if you've never done a regular push-up, it is absolutely impossible to start with knuckle push-ups. My experience of karate, needless to say, did not go all that well. And the only thing that I truly committed to in that moment was never going back to karate. We make all sorts of commitments. We commit to all sorts of things. But our commitment to love is what can make us as a people different. So let us be a people whose love is one that commits deeply, whose love does not change, whose love does not back down, does not waver in the face of pain or hurt or fear. Let us be a people whose love endures all. The last thing that love does is love sacrifices. Verse 17 says, Jesus was not sent to condemn, but to save. 19th century author and politician Edward Bulwer Lighton says, Love sacrifices all things to bless the thing it loves. Love sacrifices all things to bless the thing it loves. For love to be love, there needs to be a sacrifice, a giving up of something for the betterment of the other. My kids display this when they let their brother have the first choice of the Nerf gun before the battle, or when they let their brother have the final Fig Newton when packing their lunch. For you, it might be the choice to clean up a messy kitchen while your loved one takes a nap. Or maybe it's holding your tongue from the cutting remark that you believe justifies you in the argument. Love always is willing to sacrifice, to give up. For God, the incarnation is the action of sacrificial love, to willingly take on human flesh, to step out of eternity and walk alongside the temporal, to the openness to experience hurt and pain and tiredness and fear and vulnerability and betrayal. 
The first Christmas was a divine act of sacrifice and an extraordinary act of love. In Mark 12, Jesus, his words to his disciples, to us, is love the Lord your God with everything you have and love your neighbor as yourself. This is not an invitation to just a different way of thinking. It's a call to sacrifice. It's a call to action. To be a disciple requires us to love, and love requires us to be willing to sacrifice for those around. I started this morning with the story of Grace and I in the Zodiac, not to display how incredible I am at love, because certainly I have so much room to grow, but in a way to describe that love has to be paired with action, that love is seen through choice, that love is seen through commitment, that love is seen through sacrifice, that it can't just be words, it can't be distant, it can never, ever be indifferent. Love is an action. And in this way, I believe Christmas is the perfect picture of divine love. Each night, and I'm going to uh, kind of end with this, but each night through Advent, Grace and I have been reading a family Advent devotional. For the most part, it's been a great way to pull uh, kind of our family conversations back away from treats and presents and all of that kind of stuff and center us back on what truly is important around the Christmas holiday. What are we truly celebrating? A few nights ago, we were reading uh, the, uh, the topic for that evening, and it was trying to get at this answer of why did Christmas happen? And the devotional kind of ends by saying, or giving us an answer to the why, by saying, Jesus came to take the assignment of living as a human so that he could suffer death for us. And then it goes on to say, only a divine savior could live a sinless life and only a human savior could die in the way needed. Now, these are true statements. I don't disagree with these statements. But what struck me in that moment as I'm reading this to our kids was it never actually says that God wanted to be with us. Never actually said that God loves us. And I couldn't help but question in that moment, sitting with my kids who were 10 and 9, is do they believe Jesus came just because they were a problem that needed fixing? Or do they believe that Jesus came because they are deeply, deeply loved? These are two very different ways to celebrate Christmas. Either we celebrate Christmas as the first domino that needed to fall in order for the ultimate play, uh, price to be paid to appease God's need for sacrifice, or we celebrate it as the continuation of a love story when an eternal God chose his love for us to become real by sacrificing to be with us and committing to give us the ability to be with him in eternity. I believe the nativity we celebrate is so much more than just the how of Jesus coming. But we celebrate it because of his love. His love for each of us, individually. To understand and celebrate Christmas in this way can shape us as disciples and help us to see how our action of love can change the world. Not only now, but all year long. Would you pray with me?
Father, thank you for showing us love by coming to be with us. We are so thankful that your love is an action. That it wasn't just contained in heaven. It wasn't just words found in pages. But you actually came to be with us. You walked like we walk. You lived like we live to show us your love. May we be a people that loves in that very same way. That our love would always be paired with action. That our love would choose the other. That our love would be deeply committed. That our love would always be willing to sacrifice. Father, thank you. We celebrate you. We exalt you this morning. We pray these things in the mighty and powerful and incredible name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.